Hey friends, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. We believe that you were made for God's mission. We encourage you to check out our website, highlandcc.org, where you can learn more about what you are called to in Christ Jesus. Let's hear a message today that we hope will challenge, encourage you, and ultimately help you to grow and identify your purpose in the plan of God. Hey church, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 today, so if you want to go there, you can, you can get out your Bible and go there. It'll also be on the screen behind me, or if you're watching online, it'll be down at the bottom of the screen. Thanks for joining us this morning. Let's jump into Mark 14. <clears throat> this is Mark 14, verse 32. Jesus and his disciples came to a place called Gethsemane, which means an olive press. It's where two large stones would crush olives into oil. So it's a place of pressure and pressing. Jesus and his disciples came to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to them, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to feel despair. He was anxious. And he said to them, I am very sad. It's as if I'm dying. Stay here and keep alert. And then he went a short distance farther, and he fell to the ground, and he prayed that if possible, he might be spared this time of suffering. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Take this cup of suffering away from me, however, not what I want, but what you want. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you stay alert for one hour? Stay alert and pray so that you won't give in to temptation. The spirit is eager, but the flesh is weak. And again, he left them and he prayed, repeating the same words. And again, when he came back, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. And they didn't know how to respond to him. And he came a third time. And he said to them, will you sleep and rest all night? That's enough. The time has come for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. Look, here comes my betrayer. A while back, I was doing premarital counseling for a young couple, and, which is something I highly recommend. And if, if you're a young couple, uh, shortly after the new year, we have this great program called Starting Married Life Right. Dr. Kevin Shelby's a part of that as well. So am I some others. Matt and Laura Smeltzer, awesome Highlanders, are leading that. So if you're a young couple about to get married, maybe newly married, let me recommend that to you. I was doing premarital counseling with this young couple a couple years ago, and uh, we start the first session, and they're just making jokes about the funny habits that their partner has. She does this, he does that, and then she says, well, he cleans all the time. All the time. He's cleaning his house all the time. It drives me crazy. And he said, that's because you're making it dirty all the time. I was like, okay, you're on your way to marriage. Like, this is a <clears throat> strong start here. And um, but we move on. By the third session, we're in deeper territory. And we're talking about depression and anxiety because this is something that he struggles with a lot. And so I asked him, how does it feel when you're anxious? I'll never forget what he said. He said, it's like, it's Eric, it's kind of like I'm at the grocery store standing by those rows of shelves trying to hold everything in its place. And as, as hard as I try, things keep falling down on me. And the aisle's just filling up with stuff I can't get out of there, can't step over. And as hard as I try to keep everything in its place, this clutter and chaos is just falling in on me all the time. There was a silence. And then he looks at his wife-to-be and he says, Babe, you know that's why I clean all the time. 
He said, I know it's silly, but I, I just think I don't want my house to feel like the rest of my life. And so I put away the toys and I put away the toothbrushes and the remotes. I put them back where they're supposed to go. He said, it's so I can have a little bit of control when life feels out of control. I'm just a little bit less anxious if I can control something. Now, does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me. It made sense to her too. I mean, I think about the people in my life, the people in your life who are controlling, and, and some of those people are controlling because they're power hungry or narcissistic or selfish, but I think a lot, a lot of people are desperately trying to control things because they are so anxious and scared. They're anxious. Okay. Did you notice that in this passage we're told something that's pretty rare for the scriptures? And that is we're told how Jesus feels. We're not often told that. Did you notice? <clears throat> this is verse 33. He began to feel despair and he was anxious. And so Jesus said to them, I am very sad. It's as if I'm dying. Now, I'm not going to play armchair psychologist with what Jesus is going through right now, but by his own admission, he's in a pretty tough spot right now. He's in a bad way. And um, this is, in Christian history, this is what we call the start of the passion of the Christ. And so when you hear that, the passion of the Christ, what do you think about? The movie. And if you think about the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you're thinking about the violent death of Jesus, torture and death. But Christian history is, is really consistent and scripture is really consistent on the thing that's most difficult about the death of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, is not the physical agony but the emotional turmoil. A soul that is anxious and despairing throughout, that feels lonely and abandoned by God even. That's the passion and it starts right here. Okay. You'll notice that Jesus says, you know, we think about the death of Jesus as happening on the cross. Jesus says the death starts right here. It feels like I'm dying. This is the start of the passion. So there's a lot of messages we could give on this text. In fact, I preached on it a year ago, thinking more about what this means about God, what this means about Jesus, what Jesus is beginning to accomplish for you and me. We could preach about how the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But here's, here's what was pressed in my heart as I was working on this text this week. And that is, I think there are a bunch of people in this room and watching online who are very anxious right now. There's a lot in this world to be anxious about. There's a lot in some of your lives that I know you've shared with me that, well, it's worth being anxious about. So let me take a pastoral run at this text and ask this question. What does Jesus do when he's anxious? He prays. Now, in some ways, that's what Jesus is always doing. If you read through the Gospels, the story of Jesus, again and again, we're told he withdrew to a lonely place to pray. And over and over again, he's telling his disciples to pray as well. In fact, even in this passage, he tells them to sit here and what? Pray. Jesus gives us instructions about how to pray. He makes promises about what happens when we pray. And he, he even gives us a script to pray in Matthew 6, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be. I can't pray that not in the King James Version. 
You know what I mean? It just comes out of me. So he even teaches us how to pray. But what we might say is that all those instructions from Jesus, all those examples from Jesus are examples and instructions for how we should pray in ordinary life. In the, in the Christian calendar, you have some special seasons like Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter, and the rest of the calendar is called ordinary time. And I think, I think what we have here in this passage is prayer for a special time. All those other instructions, that's prayer for ordinary life. But this is, this here, maybe this is what we pray when we're anxious. Because notice, Jesus does not pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is what he prays. It's a different prayer, okay? This is what he prays in this special moment when he's anxious. This is what he prays. Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Take this cup of suffering away from me, however not what I want, but what you want. So let's dive into this prayer. I, I want to learn from what Jesus prays when he's anxious and see if there's something I can apply to myself when I'm anxious. Here's how he starts his prayer. Abba, Father. I think it's easy for us to miss how significant this is. Jesus is calling God, Dad, or Daddy. And nobody before Jesus had the audacity to do this. Moses doesn't pray to God like this. David doesn't pray to God like this. Abraham does not pray to God like this. Nobody before Jesus comes to God and calls him by this intimate term, dad. And it's not in the fancy Hebrew religious language. It's in Aramaic, which is just kind of the language everybody uses day in and day out. It's the household language. And so... Nobody is calling God Abba Father before Jesus, but after Jesus, we see this show up all over the early church, which means these Christians were trying to make sense of what Jesus had accomplished for them. And they didn't all make sense to them, but one thing they knew was that Jesus had broken down these formal barriers between us and God, and we could now come to God as our dad and talk to him like that. You know, Paul uses this term, Abba, Father, twice after Jesus used it. When Jesus is anxious, the first thing he does is he comes to the Father in love. When he's anxious, Abba, Father. But he doesn't stop there. He then comes to the Father in faith. He says, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Now, this is a big theme in Mark, what's possible for God. You remember this scene, um, we got this dad who has a son who's sick and demon-possessed, and he comes to Jesus and he says, if it's possible, would you heal him? You remember what Jesus says, it's so great. If it's possible, all things are possible for the one who has faith, he says to him. And now, Jesus comes to the heavenly father, his Abba, with that same faith. God, for you, all things are possible. Do you believe that? Amen. And do you believe that? <clears throat> because you have probably prayed for things that you did not receive. When we pray for things that we don't receive, we are tempted to believe that maybe for him all things are not possible. I'll tell you, for those who I've walked with who have lost their faith, this has often been one of the most jarring things. Maybe God is not as powerful as I thought. 
We're going to come to that in a second, but let me just point out that Jesus has no doubt about God's ability. And whether or not he receives what he asks for, God's ability to do all things is not in question for Jesus. He comes to Jesus in the faith. He comes to the Lord, sorry, in the faith that for him all things are possible. That's why he's coming to him. So he comes to the Lord in love. He comes to the Lord in faith. And then he comes to the Lord in honesty. Take this cup of suffering away from me, he says. He's thinking about the death that he's about to endure. He knows what's coming for him. And he says, Father, take this away. I don't want to die like this. Take this cup of suffering away from me. This is what I honestly want. Um, for the record, Jesus is not asking God to do anything more than he's done in the past. There's this passage in Isaiah when Israel's been suffering for a long time and finally God changes his mind and he says this, look, I have taken the cup of reeling, the goblet of my wrath from your hand and you'll no longer drink from it. God can be persuaded. Specifically, God can be persuaded to stop your suffering or the suffering of somebody else. He can be persuaded to take that cup away from you or away from them. This is why Abraham, this is why Moses, this is why Hezekiah plead with God for God to change his mind about the suffering of others. There is nothing wrong with asking God honestly to do that. Jesus does it. He comes to God in love. He comes to God in faith. And then he comes honestly and says, God, I don't want to die like this. Take this cup of suffering away from me. But of course, God does not take the cup away, does he? Does that mean God's not listening? Maybe God's got the power to do it and he's not listening. There's this, there's this scene in Genesis 17. Abraham and Sarah have been longing to have a child for a really long time. And that is a special kind of suffering, uh, difficulty conceiving a child. I think one of the things that makes that so hard is that you're often dealing with it in silence. Nobody knows what you're going through. So Lindsay and I have a special place in our heart for those who are dealing with that. And if you want us to be praying for you, let me know. We would love to pray for you about that. Abraham and Sarah wanted to have a child for a really long time. They're nearing 100 years old. And finally, Abraham has a child with somebody else. That's a long story. That child's name is Ishmael. And God tells Abraham, listen, Sarah is still going to have a baby, and that baby is going to be the child of my promise, and I'm going to do great things through that child. And Abraham thinks that's ridiculous. He thinks that's impossible. And so he prays to God. To God, Abraham said, if you would only accept Ishmael, just let him be the child of promise. Don't make us go through this waiting any longer. Just accept Ishmael. Let him be the child of promise. But God said, look at this, no. Your wife, Sarah, will give birth to a son for you. You'll name him Isaac, and I will set up my covenant with him and his descendants after him as an enduring covenant. But look at this. As for Ishmael, well, I've heard your request, and I will bless him. I'll make him fertile, I'll give him many, many descendants, he'll be the ancestor of 12 tribal leaders, and I will make a great nation out of him. God hears him, and in response to his prayer, God still says no to a part of it. 
But God changes his mind about what he's going to do with Ishmael because Abraham prayed for him. Look at that. I've heard it said like this, God never does nothing when we pray. There was an English teacher in the service before and she shook her head. I think that's a double negative. God (laughs) never does nothing when we pray. What if that's true? How does that change how you pray? But it doesn't stop there, and this is how it ends, and then I'm going to call Brisha up here in just a moment. Look at this. The prayer, he prays to the Lord in love. He prays to the Lord in honesty. He prays to the Lord in faith. But then he prays in submission. In Mark 10, Jesus' disciples come to him, and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we want. In other words, not your will, but ours be done makes me think about the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden. They've been living this delightful life in this pleasant garden in the presence of the Lord, the glorious presence of the Lord all the time. But there comes this moment when they look up at the Lord and they say, you know what, Lord, not your will anymore. Ours be done. And we look around at the world and we look at all the sin and the brokenness around us that owes its origins to that phrase, not your will, but ours be done. How could that be fixed or reversed by any other language? except not my will, Lord, but yours be done. However, not what I want, but what you want. Here's what I think. I think countless prayers have been offered by those in this room and elsewhere. Countless anxious prayers have been offered that were loving to the Lord, that were faithful to the Lord, that were honest with the Lord, but never submitted, never surrendered that control that we desire most when we're anxious, never surrendered that control to the one who actually deserves it. And so, so often those people remained anxious. This is actually the medicine, right? To submit that control, not to hold on to it. What if there's a lesson there for us? What if when I'm anxious, what if I came to the Lord in love? Scoot this over. I came to the Lord in faith and honesty, but in submission. That we know there's a lot of other anxieties in this room, and so we want to just spend a special time in prayer. So we're going to close in this prayer. Brisha and I will we'll go back and forth. We're going to try to model these four steps to come to the Lord when we're anxious. And, um, and then we're going to take these right after this to a shepherd's meeting where our shepherds will be praying over these as well. But can, can we pray over you as we're, as we're heading towards our conclusion? Lord, we come to you as Abba, our Father. We love you. We know that as our Father, nothing can separate us from your love. Neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present or the future, height or depth, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We love you. We know you're a good Father, that you give us what we need even better than we ask for. We love you. We love you because we are called your children, and so our desire is to be with you, our Father. As the deer pants for streams of water, our soul pants for you, O God. Our soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. We love you, our Lord and our God. And with all of our heart, with all of our strength and soul and mind, we love you. You are our Abba and Father. Father in heaven, we pray to you in faith because you are the all-knowing, all-seeing creator and lover of our souls. 
And as we've already sung this morning, we want to be faithful people to you and to your calling because you have always been faithful to us, even when you made it very clear to the Israelite people what had to be done to receive your favor, and they failed. You extended grace, and you were faithful to your covenant. And then as the world's disobedience grew, your love for us made it clear what had to be done. So you sent Jesus to this earth to unveil the greatest portrait of love not just to one group of people, but he made it available to all who will ever live. Your power displayed through the blood of Jesus can cleanse every sin and remove every stain. And Paul assures us in Philippians 4.13 that through Christ all things are possible. So please allow our devotion to you to result in a faith that displays changed lives and a blatant defiance to Satan and any power that he might have over us. We trust you are listening right now to our hearts, to these concerns, and prepared to act on our behalf as your faithful followers. We pray this in the name of and through the perfect faith of your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, as we named and you heard some of our anxieties today, and there are those that are unnamed and unheard this morning, but on many hearts and being lifted up to you now, we ask that you would take this cup away from your people. A cup of suffering, a cup of fear, a cup of worry, you have told us to ask and it would be given to us. And so we ask and we desire that you would give. We ask that you would spare us as you have others, that you would rescue us as you have rescued your people in generations past, that you would provide for us as you have provided for your people. We ask that you would part the waters before us, that you would make our paths straight, that you would heal the broken, release the prisoner, give sight to the blind and lift us up. We pray, God, that you would breathe on these dry bones and that they would walk again. We know that we see only through a glass darkly, and one day we shall see face to face. We know that we do not know all that we ask for, but we ask in confidence that you hear us, that you will honor us. We ask that you would take this cup away from your people, Lord. We are anxious. Take this cup. Great and glorious Father, we are grateful for the way you make yourself known to us. But I admit it's, it's not always easy for us to see or to gauge what genuine faith looks like in the lives of your people. So we go to the word and again and again, it's Jesus who demonstrates for us what love, faith, humility, and honesty look like. His actions help us understand that faith is best revealed in someone's life through their submission to you. Hmm. And from what I read in your word and what I've seen in my own life, faith in you can't have any real power without me first committing to you and ultimately submitting to your will and to your desires above my own. Just as Jesus did in the garden, we verbally submit our lives to you, and we know that because you heard the cries of your son, you also hear the cries of your people. In faith, we echo Jesus in saying, not what we want, but what you want. Mm. And again, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.22, you are head over all things. And so we place our faith and trust in you individually and as your church. Again, we give our lives to you. And it is only through Christ that we can stand in front of you perfect and holy with your full attention, Abba Father. So it is in his mighty name we offer up these things to you. And it is in Jesus' mighty name we pray this prayer. Amen. May your anxieties and your burdens be cast on him. May you find peace 
and power in the name of the Lord Jesus. And may you submit yourself to his perfect will. You're dismissed.